Hello and welcome to the DJ Force 10 In Conversation Podcast Edition 102. Yes, 102. And what a guest I have for you this episode. I have none other than the legendary singer, songwriter, performer, actor, etc. Mid-Jaw. Um, which is amazing, because um, like I say in the podcast, I never thought I would be speaking to someone like Major. Um This man, if you've not um, heard of him or if you're not familiar with his work, he is responsible for some of the biggest songs, um, Vienna, um, Do They Know It's Christmas, as it is this time of year, um, and and just loads of us. We, we hear about it in the interview. We talk about a lot of stuff in there, but it... It's quite amazing um, the the journey he's on. He's just released um, a new retrospective album called Soundtrack, which kind of covers from 1978 to 2019, um, and just a selection of tracks that that, that he has written um, and performed on. And um, there's a cover, a couple of covers on there as well. Um, and it's 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 an it's an amazing album. It's a double CD DVD, um, and I've had it on in the car quite con- well constantly, really, because uh, there's tracks on there that that you know I just didn't realise he was part of, or if he if he had written or anything like that, or something that um, he had like covered or anything like that previously. But we like I say we chat about that all in the conversation, and uh, yeah, it's it's gone down as one of my favourite interviews, which is kind of cool. Um, other bits and bobs uh, before we get the interview started, uh, we are looking at. At 365 days of scratching still um i'm still doing that i'm on 341 i think it is as of today uh, i've still got to record my one for today so um yeah you'll probably see that um and I've probably a couple of others depending on when this is released um and uh, yeah i just want to give a shout out to another podcast that's uh, just started it's a few episodes in uh it's called the bloody vegans podcast um it is a uh, podcast as you probably gathered from the title about veganism uh in all its kind of um angles and um presentations so you've got sort of general casual um vegan type people interviewed on there um and they talk about why they've chosen the plant-based life and how that's affecting them and their family or how they cook for their young children and stuff like that which is really cool uh, but also it goes into um more of the activism activism side of it so more about animal welfare um environmental um uh sort of side of things with that um but do check it out it is a fascinating listen i'm not vegan myself um i was vegetarian for a long time and i do try and have uh more sort of plant-based meals and things like that um but i just found the the views and the conversation uh really good um and yeah it's uh set up by james moore uh who i work with and um yeah do 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 check them out and uh yeah see if you like it or not um and that'll be awesome but Apart from that, I think I'm going to kick into the interview. I don't think we've got anything else left to say. Uh, next next uh, couple of interviews I've got coming up are on the sort of heavier side of things. So we're sort of like venturing back into the metal side of things after venturing into this uh, pop rock prog um, classic side of things that I've been doing in previous episodes. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Uh, we overcame a lot of technical issues to get this done, um, which may be apparent in the start of this interview. I don't know how I come across, but it felt really tense. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm going to stop rambling now. I'm going to let you get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Midjour. Enjoy. Well, first and foremost, thank you very much. <laughs> As technical issues <laughs> we have overcome, I think, uh, on this in this case. Um, but yeah, no, thank you for uh, for doing this. It's um, an absolute uh, pleasure to actually speak to you because um, I don't know I never thought I'd be speaking to Midjour. So, <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, yeah, neither did I for the last forty-five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, well, like I said, we've we've overcome the technical issues, and um, and and we are here. Um, we're, we're here to talk about um, your your uh, new album, um, a compilation of uh, your last 
Was it 40 years? Yeah, uh, uh, there are more, but um, I think we just did a bit of a hand selection. I didn't want it just to be, you know, a hits album. I yeah. wanted to reflect the, uh, you know, the, the kind of, I suppose, the passage of, you know, songwriting really over the years, how you how you progress, how you grow up in music publicly. Mm. And how, how did you um, how did you put together something like this? Because obviously, like you said, there there are some um, sort of omissions from songs you've been involved in. Um, but what was your sort of thought process behind this album? Because it's kind of like it's not it's not like your typical best of or greatest hits of. Um, like you said, it was hand picked. No, what was the well, I kind of, I kind of wanted that if you know, you, if you had landed from Mars and you didn't, you had never heard, you know, or know what a mid-year was, that mm. this might give you a, a decent, uh, you know, thumbnail sketch. Um, I've chosen some songs that I think are maybe some of the best songs. Um, you know, when people ask me what my favourite songs are, they tend to think you're just going to jump out and say the biggest hits, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, there, are, there are many. Progresses and many little tributaries you take from you know swimming up your main river the, mm. to get where you're going, and that means deviating and doing things that are musically more interesting, but not necessarily commercially more interesting. So uh, I I set about starting uh, with something that that weirdly um, Gary Kemp said to me uh, not too long ago. I was interviewing him, and he said the rich kids to him were the bridge between punk and the kind of uh, the you know new romantic uh, you know electronic mm. uh, world that was about to come because i i brought a synthesizer and used it in the rich kids so uh, so i thought that was a good starting point anything prior to that wasn't really me it wasn't you know i didn't write the songs or produce the records so from from that moment with marching men in 1978 all the way through to, you know, Glorious with Rusty, uh, you know, last year. Um, it, it's a fair old uh, spread, really. Yeah, no, definitely, it definitely is. And I, I got, obviously, your your, um, your press company sent me sent me the album, um, but I was actually streaming it before that. <laughs> um, and, and it was just, it was just like listening to it. And then, like, some of them, for me, it was realizing that you actually had a hand in these songs or you were responsible for these th- these particular songs. Um, and it was, it was sort of a, it was a really, um, what's the word, a good, a good journey through, through like songs that I've heard and songs that I hadn't heard that you had, that you had done. Obviously there's a cover on here as well and things like that, but, um, it was just, it was very interesting. Well, good. I mean, that that was the, that was the the main point. I mean, when you put together a a kind of best of the, the only people who have, you know, are necessarily really interested in other hardcore collectors, the ones who got everything that your name's on. Mm. And they've usually got, you know, various versions of the best of, the greatest hits, you know, all the things that happen over the years from various labels you've been on. They they tend to, you know, glue some stuff together and stick it out there and sell another few thousand to scrape some, some money in you for themselves. Uh, and this wasn't that. This was... If I had to look back and if I pop my clogs tomorrow and I had to look back over the entire body of work that I've done, I wanted to leave something that was a good representative, you know, collection. Yeah. And I think that's what that is. So there might be some surprises on there for people and there might be some oddities on there for people. But it's, as I said to me, that the process isn't, oh, yeah, you were, you were a bit punky in that time and you were a bit electronic there and then you were a bit of guitar hero there and then you were a bit of whatever. That's just progress. That's just how you live through your life. So I didn't want to, to map that. I wanted to map how songwriting has changed uh, over the years from the soundbite songs of, you know, you know Visage and Ultravox in the early years right through to heartfelt, you know, serious adult looking back reflective songs that you do now as a as a you know an older person so um so that was my main main uh, main uh you know bone of contention with the whole thing <laughs> um so just sort of um because you've been in the music industry for 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 this amount of time um what what are your how do you um say it's not to stay relevant, but how do you keep up with, with what's going on? Because obviously there was a point where, well, there's always points where the music industry kind of changes. Um, and going from the sort of like big million selling singles from, you know, late 80s and prior to that, 
into the sort of like more digital side of things where the sales aren't always well they'll never be as big as <laughs> as what they used to be but how, no, how, of course. How, how do you as a musician i know you sort of do a lot of like tv work and stuff like that as well but on the music side of things how, how have you adapted how have you sort of like seen this change happen well you don't uh is the the simple answer you make a decision uh, when music starts going off in a direction, popular music starts going off in a direction that you don't particularly feel comfortable with, mm. um, you've got to make a decision. Do you want to jump on that bandwagon and be dragged along there for commercial success? Or do you want to stick, you know, following your own weird meandering path? And I, when when dance DJ remix stuff all started happening back in the late 80s, early 90s, I made a, a conscious decision not to be part of that because I didn't like it. It wasn't my thing. You know, I spend, you know, a long time uh, structuring, you know, pieces of music and, you know, melodies and counter melodies and getting arrangements right because I, I love melody and I yeah. love lyrics. Well, well, what happened with the whole dance thing was the song became secondary. In fact, <laughs> thirdly, mm. <laughs> we're, we're way down the bottom of the heap and the BPM was king. Yeah. Um, so all they wanted to do was just take a vocal line and then put some discordant out of tune, you know, synthesized bass and a groove and, the, and then it became a dance record. And I chose not to do that, knowing all the time that that might be sealing my, you know, fate. Mm. You know, I might be I might be heading off into obscurity, which you kind of do. But a lot of the songs that I wrote during those uh, obscure years are on um, the soundtrack record because it's all part of my progress, not my progress through, you know, the history of commercial music, but my progress through my life. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I was, um, yeah, with with the sort of um, change, like you say, with the with the, the sort of like dance beat side of things, and a lot of a lot of stuff's coming back round again, as it always does with music. The um, I've I've got a lot of uh, a few friends that do uh, what they call synth wave, which is essentially what the eighties kind of like popular sound was, but you know, brought up today, but using kind of the same instruments. To be honest, sure, um, a lot of the sort of like analog um, synthesizers, things like that. They're they're very keen on using and very um sort of um well big on using really and it, it seems to be a very sort of popular subgenre at the moment would you would you ever plan on doing anything along those lines like working with anyone in that field or just to sort of revisit because i know you did an orchestral version of vienna which is actually on yeah. your um on your uh, album and obviously the orchestrated album as well you released a couple of years ago um but would you go, ever go back and do i know fate of gray or, or or anything like that but with more of a modern um with the modern sounds i don't you know what i really don't know i mean I, i've been doing a, a tour recently i called it the 1980 tour to celebrate that particular year because it was the year that both you know ultravox's vienna album and the first of a visage album mm. um charted and became successful so i've been out playing that so in a way i have gone back and revisited it but i i haven't really thought you know what i'll update this because if you look back uh a lot of the a lot of the influences that, um, that a lot of the newer artists are citing are those very tracked. Yeah. So why would I go back and it's a bit like asking Jimi Hendrix to go back and say, you know, <laughs> Hey Joe was great and, and that really influenced me and my guitar playing. Do you fancy doing it now with a really completely different guitar sound? No. You know, because it is what it is. Yeah. It's, it's something, it's a moment in time that why should you change it? Because it's done its job by you know, other people coming along, hearing that, being influenced, and then die, you know, being deflected and going off and doing their interpretation of it. That's how music progresses. That's it should be like that. That's how I learned by hearing, you know, David Bowie or the Small Faces or Jimi Hendrix or whoever, mm. and that took me off in my funny little peculiar uh, roots. But the idea of going back and changing it just because you can. Doesn't doesn't really appeal an awful lot, and but I'm 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 hugely humbled by the fact that anyone would uh, turn around and cite anything that you've done in the past as a bit of an influence, and then they've taken it and altered it and changed it and turned it into something of their own. It's just wonderful. I think that's yeah. the way it should be. You know. 
yeah no definitely definitely and and like i said with these my sort of friends that i have in this sort of field of music that the 80s was very like very influential for them um across the board well if you think about it it wasn't it wasn't just the you know that you're talking about the equipment there it wasn't just about the analog synthesizer and whatever. Yeah. it was about the naivety of it all yeah you know the 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 punk ethos was still alive and kicking when the uh the electronic you know ele- the revolution came along because it was the same thing. Instead of picking up a guitar that you didn't know how to play and putting a band together, you picked up a synthesizer and you didn't know how to play and you experimented. No. But it was at a time when there seemed to be enough space to experiment. You could, you could, you know, try things. You could make records in your bedroom for the first time ever. Uh, you know, that, that whole attitude was, you know, it was paramount to, you know, what's, what came out at the time. So you you can try and recreate the sounds and you can try and recreate that type of music or be influenced by it. But you can't put your head back where the world was at that moment in time. You know, the technical revolution, the end of the punk era, uh, you know, uh, records were selling well, independent labels, you know, all of that stuff mm. all happened at the same time. So you, you can't go back as much as you'd like to and say, well, we can recreate that or we can do that again. Things move on at different rates. So you have to wait until the moment is right or be in the middle of it all when it happens and think, okay, here's my moment and go off and do something interesting. Yeah. Cool. No, it was, um, it was, it was one of those things where, um, like, I'm, I, I'm nearly 40 myself, so I sort of grew up during the 80s period and, and the music then was very... Um, looking back on it now was very experimental like at the time coming out of that that decade a lot of people were like what the heck was that let's not do that again kind of thing but it's funny how it comes back round. like i remember like my first piece of vinyl i owned in in the states it was uh in um when i was younger sorry it was um was europe the final countdown that's got synthesized all over it but you know it was just things like that and now that how that sort of like comes back round, and 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 that song is now like i mean i dj rock clubs and stuff so that song is now cool for people to dance along to and sing along to whereas back then it kind of got annoying for people so um, of course yeah but but you've got to also remember that you know back uh you know in the 80s when the technical revolution happened the synthesizers were still seen as a novelty yeah and as you quite rightly pointed out they're everywhere now you know they they might not be as blatantly uh, distant and cold and mid-european as they used to be Mm. but they are everywhere it's a it's a standard instrument now and something like final count now the whole entire riff yeah, as a as a synthesizer riff, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I, I had a similar experience in my musical career as well. I um I entered in I was into the well I was in a metal band um for about ten years, and um but I was I was quite an anomaly in the metal band. I was a scratch DJ, which right okay. <laughs> which at the time there was a movement going on called new metal, uh, which which had sort of hip hop elements in with in the sort of like sort of like uh, heavy metal side of things um but i was always like at that point looked at with a point of like contention as i was in dj in the band you know and and a lot of people like (laughs) would would kind of like not like especially like purist metal purist but over time that became a bit more uh, normal there was a few sort of big bands that came out of that um a couple of them still around today still doing the same thing and i'm still scratching away not for a band but for myself um but it it having that kind of like anomaly and then having like someone look back and actually go, yeah, actually it's, it's, it's something that now we can appreciate. Whereas at the time, a lot of people like I'm guessing back, back in the eighties when that synthesizer came in because it wasn't a natural or fully natural instrument. You probably had a lot of people sort of looking at it like that's not a guitar. That's not drums. That's not bass. Well, no, no different, no different from, you know, prior to me joining Ultravox, you know, Ultravox used a violin and, uh, during the punk period. And that was really frowned upon. You know, Ultravox were just a bunch of musicians who used whatever was at the fingertips. Mm. And electronics were, were a major part of that, as was, you listen to the track Vienna. Um, it's synthesizer, it's piano, it's electronic drums, and it's a violin. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's such an odd combination of things. So, it's it's not been you know not been uh, you know tied to one particular genre or sound or whatever. 
that uh, enables you to experiment. You know, we used yeah. to do, we used to go to the studio and do a B side, and we'd just walk in and use whatever was in the studio and create something out of that. You know, and that was that's uh, that was that was a bit of fun for us, but it's a, a classic example of experimentation. Yeah, no, and I'm hoping that sort of comes back. Obviously, with these new, there's obviously always new stuff, and a lot more people have access to do things in their in their bedrooms for what for what um, of another room um and it's a lot more accessible now there's there's a lot yeah, more of like software out there that that can do whatever you need it to do or record whatever you need it to record and it's in your palm of your hands or it's on your on your laptop um whereas i mean when obviously you went through the music industry at early age i learned sound recording at an early age i was using reel to reels i was using very primitive um uh, sort of music technology recording equipment on an Atari um, and things like that. So, like, I, I have an appreciation for what we have now, like what I've got in front of me on my computer here and how I'm recording this is light years ahead of what I was using when I was a kid. Oh, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I've been, it's been a, it's the 35th anniversary of the, band-aid record and, and when I point out to people that when all the artists turned up to uh, to add their part to the record they'd never heard it because there was no way of playing it to them yeah. because it was pre-internet it was pre-mp3 you know you couldn't you know, these days you just email someone a track and they can hear it they can learn the song so they all turned up at the studio cold because that's the only way they could do it yeah. uh, and that was only 35 years ago so yeah, the the world has changed uh, beyond recognition when it comes to technology. It has, it has indeed. Um, I've got a, I've got a couple of questions uh, that were sent to me from one of my um, my my wife's work colleagues. Uh, his name is Paul, um, but he saw you uh, a couple of years ago uh, in Saint Petersburg, Florida, um, and um, it was yep. at, it was at the local six six two was the venue. I used to live out there as well, but we missed you that night. I can't remember why. We did get invited to go, but um, but um, I only moved back to the UK a couple of years ago, so it's it was it was um, no, it was just one of those nights because I think they had uh, uh, Pill play Public Image Limited play as well right. across the road, the venue across the road, like that same couple of months apart. Anyway, he was asking. Uh, he saw you there. It was because it, it was a small venue. It was about fifty people ish in the audience um, and it was just you and a guitar. And he was asking how you kind of motivated yourself for that. How was like how you know obviously being in a technically a foreign country but it, what's the how do you get yourself motivated for shows like that well you don't i mean you know I, that one was uh, was a bit of an exception uh, america was always a a gray area for ultravox they never understood ultravox uh, yeah. you can see why you know the first album i went out there with was the vn album and there's a 7 minute uh, opening track is a, an instrumental, and they just had the, it was like we we had landed from Mars at that point. So it took America a long time to catch up with with anything that was going on. Uh, by which point we they'd missed us completely. So touring around America, I I that tour that uh, your, your friend saw mm. um, uh, it was a bit hit and miss. I I had been speaking at uh, Lippa, the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. Uh, doing a masterclass at Lipper, mm. and all these kids were asking about you know multi-album deals and world tours and all of this stuff, and I was telling them about all of that, you know what it all does yeah. and what it was like, and then it struck me at that moment in time that maybe no one in the room, you know, maybe a couple of hundred kids there, or maybe no one in the room would ever experience it because it's kind of now only the the tip of the very tip of the iceberg that gets to do that type of touring and and, and sell that quantity of records anymore as we said earlier yeah um you know record sales will never be like that again except for a, for a handful of people and um and i thought about this long and hard and i and i set about going out to america totally on my own uh, booking the gigs uh, making my own way from venue to venue no crew no tour manager nothing just a camera and an acoustic guitar and i did six weeks uh, coast to coast and back again uh, around America, and the one in St. Pete's was the worst one that I'd done, worst attended, wow. um, for whatever reason. But it was a hell of an experience, and I wanted to show, I wanted to document this, and then show young musicians that you know if you are capable of doing this, because uh, this is what you're going to expect or can expect, or even worse. Yeah. 
because you know I'm, I'm a reasonably established artist. I don't have to do this, but I did it. And uh, if you, it kind of separates the men from the boys uh, in a not a sexual way, but a, in a in a, a you know a, a, you know a musical way. Yeah. If you're not if you're not prepared to walk out there in front of fifty people with an acoustic guitar, when everything you've ever done has been in the studio with synthesizers and orchestras and whatever, and you can't do it, you're not destined for this industry. Yeah. Certainly the way it is right now. So, yeah, there was a reason for doing that too. In fact, I'm about to go and do the same thing again in January. <laughs> I'm doing a month around America doing uh, smaller venues and talking to the audience, taking questions, talking about songwriting and, yeah. and doing all of that. So uh, I'm quite happy. I'm quite a flexible character. It doesn't bother me whether I'm on stage with my full band or I'm on stage with a full orchestra or I'm in front of 100,000 people or 100 people. It's all the same process to me. Yeah, no, that's really cool. That's the sort of um, whenever I sort of get approached by any kind of or meet any young musicians and they ask me, you know, especially in the metal scene, what 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 to sort of expect and stuff. Because I had, I say, limited success where I was, but I always tell them you've you've got to go out, you've got to you've got to play shows, like you've got to take what you've done in the studio, transform, you know, um, what's the word, translate it into a live experience for them but you've got to expect sure. to play in front of next to no one but also give, yeah, I, give that level the same show absolutely uh, and you and you have to if you haven't written anything that's that's uh that's that's flexible you're not writing anything you know if it, you can only do it in one format it's not really a song is it it's not no. really a piece of music you should be able to take a decent song or any record you've made and strip it bare and play it on a guitar or a, a piano or an accordion or whatever, and still get something out of it that that uh, that transfers, you know, a story, a message, a feeling to someone else. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's uh, you're just dependent on technology. You're dependent on the periphery to get you through, and that's the wrong way around. It's putting the cart before the horse. Yeah. No, I think I, definitely, definitely, and I think you just answered one of the other questions that Paul had. Uh, <laughs> uh, he said he saw you on the Vienna Visage tour, uh, the Cliffs Pavilion in Southend. Um, yeah. He said he was he was really pleased to see the the pleasure on your face from the audience reaction, um, especially to the voice. Um, and he was just asking, he assumes you do you love doing tours like this just for the love of touring and not not so much the money side of it. So. I think you just answered that. So that's pretty cool <laughs> on that front. Obviously, you know, unless you've got anything to add to that. But um... you know what? It's 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 interesting. You know, touring. I still I I I played live long before I was allowed anywhere near a studio. Mm. Uh, and I played live for a long time before I was allowed anywhere near a studio where I could do what I wanted as opposed to what someone else wanted. Um, so I I choose to go out and do this stuff. I mean, yeah, if he saw the the 1980 tour, which is where we did the Vienna and the first Visage album uh, live, you'll seen that all the money generated went on stage. It was a it was a fantastic production. Uh, you know, it was a silent stage. We spent months uh, prepping it all. We spent months doing keyboard splits and getting the sounds right and you know, sub mixing and all of that stuff so that there was a, an unsullied sound coming out of the PA system. A uh, bit like as close as you could get to getting an audience to come into a control room in a, a recording studio and hear everything through the monitors. Uh, so uh, so we spent a long time doing it. But yeah, it, it is an absolute joy when you go in there and you play something that you haven't played for a long time and you see the audience you know, singing it and getting off on it and you know, just reliving a moment. And that's that's fabulous. That's, that's what it's all about. It's not about how much money you've got in the bank. It's about how good does it make you feel. Yeah, no, exactly. And, that, and that's that's what I tell people as well, because I didn't make any money from this. So it was, um, <laughs> you know, not to be the sort of like, you know, the, the, the jilted musician. I was quite happy for what we did, but we didn't make any money out of it as, as that sort of genre isn't... Um, there has to be easier ways of generating huge wealth than being in the music industry. Believe yeah, exactly, me. <laughs> exactly, and that's why I've got a day job now. So, um, um, but um, I was uh, the, another question he asked, but it was actually something I wanted to touch on as well. Um, you were part of Thin Lizzy for a little while, um, sort of just to take you back. I think it was around was it nineteen eighty? I think it. 
So what was that like? Because obviously they were sort of um, at that point, um, I'm guessing on the way up, uh, if not already kind of there with a couple of their big tracks. So what was that, what was that experience like? Because it's a different kind of, um, uh, obviously you had, you had your sort of like uh, uh, post-punk or punk experience, but what was, the, what was that like with a sort of full-on rock band? Well, I I saw when I was a spotty teenager, I saw a, a band playing in Glasgow called Skid Row, mm. who were the original Skid Row, an Irish three-piece band with a very young Gary Moore playing guitar. Yeah, he was sixteen, I think, at the time, and uh, and I, I thought they were fantastic. Um, and I uh, and then I've read about this other guy who had been in Skid Row for a while, a guy called Phil Lynott, and his new band Thin Lizzy were coming to play in Glasgow. So I went to see them as a three piece, and they were they were you know brilliant. You know Philip was just such a great songwriter. Yeah. So I, I I was very enthused by the whole Thin Lizzy thing. Um, I, I bumped into him in Glasgow. Uh, we hung out a bit when I moved to London to join the Rich Kids. We used to hang out again. Uh, Phil was very much a bit of he was a bit of a magpie, you know. He mm. wanted he wanted to take little bits of what was going on and bring it into Thin Lizzy and into what he was doing. So you know, Thin Lizzy, although they were considered a rock band uh, from a different genre, a different era, uh, they you'd see them you know hang out with the Pistols or, or whatever you know the Rich Kids during the the, the kind of punk period. Yeah. So when when I had um, I was in the studio putting the finishing touches to the first Visage album uh, as a producer and uh, creator, uh, I had just joined Ultravox, although nobody was particularly interested in Ultravox because they, they, everyone thought they were dead and gone. <laughs> and I got the phone call from Phil saying, you know, can you come out to America uh, and finish this tour we're doing with special guests for Journey? And Gary's out the band. Uh, we're down to three piece. Can you come out tomorrow and finish the tour? So I did. I went out. I did that that tour. I did the, uh, the Japan tour. I did an Irish tour with them. Uh, while they were looking for a permanent guitarist, a permanent replacement, mm. and uh, and it was fantastic. So all the way during that period, you know, I'd be playing. Phil and the guys, you know, bits of music that I was writing at the time with Ultravox and very enthused about getting back and doing that. I'd play them bits of magazine or bits of, uh, you know, you know, bits of craft work or whatever I was listening to. Yeah. And of course, Philip sucked all this up and he wanted to incorporate that and certainly partly what Thin Lizzy were doing, although it was a bit redundant in Thin Lizzy, but certainly in his solo material. Uh, hence, we ended up uh, writing a track called Yellow Pearl mm. uh, together, which is a very electronic track. It ended up being used on as the Top of the Pops theme for, for a few years. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's how it works. I think in the, the industry, you you meet like-minded people. Yeah. And Philip was a very creative character, and uh, uh, and you you tend to you know hook up with equally creative people, um, and that was that was a little thin Lizzie joint. Although it looks like a bit of a blip in the horizon, I played guitar long before I could get anywhere near a synthesizer. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's really. I mean because it's quite quite uh, there's quite a different. Um, well, I, I, from my experience, it's quite a different um, sort of backstage atmosphere with a rock band than it is with the sort of like pop artists um so I'm, I'm not sure if it was the same for you back then but i've shared like venues with various different genres and i've worked in various different like venues and stuff as well just like as a technician and things like that but um yeah it's always a different atmosphere with a rock band backstage Oh yeah, well, I'm sure it was probably a lot more fun. <laughs> 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 they have more scope to get, to get up to stuff, you know. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the pop artists tend to be a bit more um, uh, private. I think is the word. Um, they don't like yeah. to be bothered so much. Uh, whereas the rock bands are very social, very, um, you know, just wanting to talk and have a good time. Generally, around everyone, they'll yeah. talk with the technicians. They'll talk with the stage crew. Well, there, there was there was lots of that within Lizzie. Yeah. Oh yeah! Oh god! Yeah, yeah. They, 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 those guys knew how to enjoy themselves. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun. Excellent, excellent. So, um, so this current tour you're on, what's the um? What obviously with this out, you're touring this album, the soundtrack album. Um, is it is it just like 
a selection of these songs that you're playing at the moment or have you changed it since the um uh since the or- orchestrated album for instance well no i mean i'm not really touring this as an album i mean uh, when i go to america in january uh when i do this thing i've called songs questions and answers yeah uh, where they're, they're just two musicians on stage i've got a multi-instrumentalist uh keyboard player with me as well and uh and it's going to be very open, uh, so that's that's kind of opened up to anything that's on that album. You know, people ask questions or you know bring up specific songs, and if I can remember the song, we'll play it. So it's okay. very informal and very very loose and very scary. I have to say. Yeah, I can imagine. So I think that I think <laughs> yeah, I think the for, the format is we'll go on and play a couple of songs just to get us you know, up and running. And then we kind of open it up to either written questions or questions from the audience uh, at that moment in time. Um, and every every night will be different. You know, people will bring up different things or they'll bring up different songs that mean something to them or yeah. they'll ask specific questions that will, that will lead you to a different piece of music. And that is the antithesis of doing what I've just been doing and just about to go out and do again in Europe, which is the 1980 tour, yeah. where every night it is the same thing because it has to be retained and rehearsed and whatever because yeah. it's a very tight show. Uh, so this is the opposite of that, um, where it really is an extension of turning up in somebody's living room and picking up a guitar and, and you know having a sing around the fire. Uh, so it's again, it's that whole thing about not not wanting to be pinned down, you know, um, it's, it's so easy to say, oh, you're the synthesizer guy, and you're not, you know, you, you there's, a, there's a lot of different strings to your bow. Yeah. So this is quite a good way of of doing that, and it keeps me, it keeps my, my, you know, my head on, you know, head my shoulders and my, my feet firmly planted on the ground, because you cannot take uh, an evening like that for granted. You know, the whole thing depends on your ability to play whatever it is people expect you to play yeah. um, or want you to play and I'd pull it off, you know, and I think there's something quite nice about it that, you know, <clears throat> I, I, I did a tour like this um, about 18 months ago mm-hmm. and um, and sometimes you <clears throat> you start a song thinking you know it and then you've got no idea how the hell it finishes <laughs> and you can see audiences think it's wonderful that you're human, that you, you don't know all your songs yeah. and how how could you? You know, I, I couldn't possibly know all my songs. Um, so uh, you start with the best intentions, and sometimes it just falls apart. But that in itself is something that you never ever ever get to experience or see. Yeah. Um, so you're really opening yourself up to uh, to you know falling flat in your face, and hoping that your experience will be able to pull you through to the end. You know. Yeah. No. I mean that that to me sounds absolutely like well, it just sounds scary. Like if if I was to attempt something like that, it would be it would be, yeah. Just if you got random requests for things, and oh, if yeah, it's, and... it's petrifying. I mean, you you can talk your way out of the request. Yeah. So if you know you don't know it, you say, "Well, how about this one instead?" <laughs> uh, so you, you there is a there is a safety blanket, but uh, but other than that, yeah, you you're kind of exposed. That's amazing. That is amazing. I didn't I I quite click the show was like that, but having like a Q and A. And generally taking requests, that's that is that would really keep you, yeah, like you say, grounded because it's it's sort of yeah. it, it's it's you're you're giving people kind of what they want, but at the same time giving them that experience of you working your way through it as well, not not having a predetermined set list of sure. all your sort of biggest songs. It's it's the songs that you know, like you say, actually mean something to someone. Um, and hopefully you can remember it and you can <laughs> you can play it. <laughs> Um, which is that, that is crazy. So, um, what, another question that that Paul gave me, I wasn't really going to bring it up, but it kind of, I think, it kind of fits with this. You, you were kind of, um, and one of your chatting to the audience, you were saying you were slightly disillusioned by the music industry as a whole as it was then. Um, what? And it said the only way you could really change it is is to be within it, which you are. Um, but what what sort of things like? could you do i mean i i'm guessing it would fall on a sort of education sort of uh side of things but what what would you um how would you change the music industry if you could or anything like that well it's difficult it's not like anything it's never going to go back to how it was yeah. uh, because it can't you know that that ship has sailed yeah. uh, it, it sailed from the moment that napster was born when people could 
rip music from CDs and then share it on the internet. Yeah. Um, and that's not a personal thing. That's not me moaning because someone's taken money out of my pocket. It's just the way things progress. But what it has done, it's it's sucked the system dry. So instead of you know a record label signing a hundred acts and maybe getting three worldwide you know global commercial successes out of that, but giving ninety seven other acts a chance of making music in a platform, mm. um, they haven't got the wherewithal to do it anymore. So the <laughs> what happens is. The, the window of opportunity gets incredibly narrow. So instead of going out and taking a chance on signing the next Kate Bush or, you know, the next Led Zeppelin or the next, you know, whatever, yeah. um, they want they want the next Taylor Swift or they want the next Adele. Mm. Uh, they want a surefire hit. If they're going to spend money on something, they want to make sure they're getting a commercial return. And that just eliminates a massive, massive amount of talent that's out there. Yeah, They're all sitting in their bedrooms making music that might never be heard. And that's what I would change. I would change streaming. I would make streaming uh, pay uh, artists and writers. Because how, how can any you know, young musician, any new musician, uh, you know, putting their heart and soul and their hard-earned money that they're probably earning from their day job into making music... And then get not get not get paid for it when yeah. someone streams it or plays it somewhere. It's obscene. Yeah. It's it's a it's a classic example of the world shooting itself in the foot. I mean, I've I've read so many times that you know to buy a you know, a, a, a track off of you know a, a, a music provider it costs you seventy five p or something. That's mm. a third of the price of a cup of coffee. But that 75p, that piece of music could see you through the, the darkest days of your life yeah. and it could see you through to the rest of your life. You know, when moments that you need to you know, go back to something, you own that piece of music and you can play that again. You know, that's got to be worth something. But it's, it's, it seems to have sucked the value out of what people who create do. And that is obscene because I'm sure your life and my life and everybody I know has their own personal soundtrack. You know, yeah. the moments that, that meant something to you were enhanced by a piece of music that was playing in the background. And that's invaluable. And to dismiss that is just ludicrous. You know, it's just absolute madness. So that's what I would change. And then it would open up, if there was streaming income, as there was income for labels, uh, then they might be able to widen that window again and start giving some of the more obscure or left field artists uh, a platform because that's the way you discover music. Otherwise it just becomes stagnant and repetitive and nothing progresses. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. That would be a, uh, a great platform for especially new musicians to have, like having that kind yeah. of equal playing field, if you will, to a certain degree. But it it is that because a lot of the, obviously the labels, as you've probably seen, they've all kind of amalgamated into sort of, well, a lot of the smaller labels get bought out. Those artists go on to the bigger label and, and they happen, whatever happens to them. But um, And then they have a cull. That's what they do. They, yeah. they, they all get sucked up by the big guys and then they, they cull it. They just go, oh, we don't want that anymore. That doesn't sell. Oh, no, they owe us money. Oh, get rid of that. And then they just throw it all away. But the problem is they're not replacing it with anything that's of any interest, really. Yeah. And that's that's a major problem. No, it is definitely, definitely. Well, I've got a couple more questions for you, just a couple of ones to round up uh, the interview, if that's all right. Um, sure. Just because, uh, yeah, I've got, I've got to, I've got to head out and and pick up my my girls. Yeah, and me, stuff, me so. too. <laughs> so, um, so I've, I've got uh, basically three more questions left on that front. So, um, you've worked with uh, like so many artists, too many to mention. Um, is there any artists in sort of today's music you you'd like to work with or have worked with? Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that uh, when you collaborate with someone, it should be a reciprocal collaboration. And these things happen naturally. Yeah. Uh, you know, you happen to be in the right room at the right time. You happen to admire each other's music. Uh, you have a mutual respect. And then that's when it leads to a collaboration as opposed to, you know, collaboration put together by, you know, managers or yeah. agents or record labels or whatever. And they're usually 
not about music. They're usually about generating income. Yeah. Um, so the you know it's very difficult to turn around and say, yeah, I really would love to work with blah blah blah. And there are some obvious people that I've mentioned over the years, you know, like Sigur Ross from, you know, Iceland, oh, yeah. I think, are, yeah. are great. They're great kind of soundtrack, you know, textural music guys. Um, so something like that would be of interest. But, but again, you know, I don't know them. If I happen to be, you know, in the same room and they knew me and I knew them, that's when those things ignite and start something. So every collaboration I've done, uh, up to this point has been with people that I respect and admire and that's how we'll continue if I do it anymore. Excellent, excellent. Um, that's really cool. I love Sugar Rails, so <laughs> that would be a great great collaboration if that ever happens. Um, I'll be on that. Um, so uh, what are your three uh, top albums that kind of um, influence the way you are as a person in your life? Um, you can either do, like, I know it's a big question, but um, if you have like anything off the top of your head, like just three albums you can spin off, or sure, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I'll, t- I'll take them in, in my old chronological order. As a as a spotty aspiring guitar player, <laughs> I suppose it would have been during the British blues boom in the sixties. Um, I would have listened to, you know, John Mills Blues Breakers um, with either Peter Green or. Eric Clapton, because uh, that's how you learned how to play guitar by yes. emulating those guys. So it would yep. have been um, maybe a hard road, I think, maybe with Peter Green. Um, uh, the David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust album, which I still think is maybe one of my all-time favourite albums ever, um, with uh, the brilliant Mick Ronson playing guitar and uh, piano. Mm. Um, and I'll say, uh, I'll say Kraftwerk's Trans Europe Express. And that's they're all fairly diverse, but again, it shows you the breadth of music influence. You know, you hear yeah. something you like; it doesn't really matter whether it's labelled heavy metal or whether it's labelled, you know, jazz or whether it's labelled soul. Mm. You can still like it. You know, <laughs> the only thing that stops you from liking it is your mates. You yes, yes. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> can't play it in the car with them in there so that's exactly it yeah, yeah. <laughs> excellent um no those are three fantastic albums um uh, i love the uh ziggy stardust um and Kraftwerk as well um i, I, I love my electronic side of music so the sort of the sort of um the grandfathers of that if you will um oh yeah yeah uh, there's absolutely fantastic um and i will check out john mills blues breakers i mean i i obviously i know of eric clapton um he's um quite a big like musician within my family like people own records and my, sure. my grandparents lived next to him for many years um so like he's is sort of a family connection there on that front but um yeah no awesome albums excellent um so finally uh last question um what are your hobbies away from music so when when you're not writing performing anything like that what what do you do to like just as a hobby well, I don't really have a hobby. Music was my hobby, and it turned into my livelihood. Mm. And just about everything I do stems from music. So, you know, photography was something, but that's something I use uh, associated with music, you know, direct yeah. videos and and do all of that stuff. Um, uh, graphics, uh, architecture, you know, all of that stuff. I put into stage designs. Um, you know, I don't just go and hire whoever the the cool guy is to come and do it. I tend to do a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, initially on my own and then find the right people to help me execute the ideas. Uh, so there's nothing really uh, that I do. Uh, I would say the only thing I do totally away from music is I, I cook, or I used to. Uh-huh. I, 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 did, uh, I did Celebrity MasterChef and it knocked it out of me, um, <laughs> the desire to do it. So, uh, but um, but I, 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 that's one thing that I do that's got nothing to do with music, but it's equally creative. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I love to cook. Um, it's, it's one of my things of, uh, um, yeah, it's just like another creative space for me. Um, it's a different mindset. You've got a different mindset when you're doing it. It's a different type of panic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I try and come, I have music on in the background. I usually have like a jazz or something going on in the background to kind of occupy my sort of scatty part of my brain while I'm trying to cook. So <laughs> it helps me concentrate. So yeah, no, that's great. And I didn't know you were on Celebrity MasterChef. So that was uh, like, that's, that's amazing. I know it may have beaten it out of you, but it was. 
Well, when you turn something you enjoy into competition, you cease to enjoy it. Yeah, that's very true. Again, yeah, that is that is it. So, um, yeah, Midge, thank you very much uh, for your time um, and and answering my questions and all that kind of stuff. Um, good luck with your forthcoming tours. And, thank you. Um, I hope to see you on one of those dates. I'm going to try and bring my wife along as well, and uh, yeah, we'll come along and 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 watch. Um, but yeah, cool. Thank you very much. No problem at all. I'm glad we managed to hook up yes. despite the technology. Yes, the, we, well, we beat the technology because everything is recorded <laughs> and everything like that. I'm going to hit save in a minute and make sure it's all good. But yes, no, thank you very much, Mitch, and um, have a good rest of your day. Cheers. Thanks very thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye.